Hello and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, a weekly podcast where we take a closer look at popular songs from the rock and roll era and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and of course the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Cole and buckle up because it's going to be a bumpy ride this time around. Hey, don't forget to check out the website howgooditis.com where you can find some stuff that I found interesting and some other things that don't necessarily fit well into the podcast. Also, Go follow and uh, like the show's Facebook page, which has some other stuff that'll keep you busy. You can find that over at facebook.com slash how, how good it is pod. How good it is continues its run as a featured podcast on the Podcast Republic app. In fact, it's ranked at number 10. I didn't know they were ranked, but it turns out they are. Podcast Republic allows you to download podcasts from all the major providers, and then you can set a playlist, which makes her some safer driving because you don't have to fumble with your device between titles. Podcast Republic is available for free in the Google Play Store, or you can just click the button at the How Good It Is website. While Jerry Rafferty was already known to most fans as the voice fronting the band Steeler's Wheel, it wasn't until his monster hit Baker Street that he truly became an international star. Rafferty was born in Scotland in 1947. He began his music career in the mid-60s by busking in the London subways and uh, playing in local clubs uh, on the weekend in a cover band called The Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X, with a friend of his named Joe Egan. In 1966, he and Egan were part of a band called The Fifth Column, which has no relation to the Canadian post-punk band from the 1980s. The Fifth Column released this song titled Benjamin Day. Benjamin Day did a whole lot of nothing on the charts, and that was pretty much it for the fifth column. Rafferty moved on to become the third member of a folk group called the Humble Bums, which until then consisted of uh, Tam Harvey and Billy Connolly, whose name you might recognize from his later days as a stand-up comedian. Harvey left the trio shortly afterward, and Rafferty and Connolly continued on recording a couple of albums for Transatlantic Records. After the Humble Bums broke up in 1971, Transatlantic kept Rafferty on and supported him with his first solo album titled Can I Have My Money Back, which was a critical success, but not a commercial one. So the following year, Rafferty rejoined with Joe Egan to form the band Steeler's Wheel, where they made three albums together with some help from songwriters and producers Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. Now, while Lieber and Stoller have a reputation as a strong uh, songwriting team, it was this track written by Rafferty and Egan that made Steeler's Wheel famous. Stuck in the Middle was a surprise hit, even to the band, and it further complicated the legal issues that were created by Rafferty having left the band he'd created before the record was even released. In fact, if you check out the video, and I'll post it up at the website, that's not uh, that's not Jerry Rafferty singing. That's Joe Egan miming the words because Rafferty wasn't there for the shoot. But Rafferty was persuaded to return to Steeler's Wheel, and he and Egan put together the third album with the help of session musicians. In addition, Lieber and Stola had left because they were having their own business problems, and by the time the contractually required third album came out, the band had broken up permanently, and both artists, Egan and Rafferty, were prevented from recording for about three years. 
Egan did record and release a couple of albums after this, but he was basically sidelined for good. Rafferty, on the other hand, did manage to make a commercial comeback. And of course he did, because otherwise this podcast would be over right now instead of several minutes right from now. In 1979, when all the legal dust settled, Rafferty was able to release and record his second solo album titled City to City. If you look closely at the lyrics, Rafferty clearly wrote it during the period when he was trying to untangle all of the mess from the Steelers' wheel lawsuits. Uh, given the bunch of the lyrics about crazy days and dreams about moving away and owning a house somewhere, but instead drinking to forget his troubles. What's also interesting to me is that the song starts out being told in the second person. It's taken you so long to find out you were wrong, but then shifts to the third person later on. He's got this dream about buying some land. And the lawsuit's resolution is also reflected in the lyrics with those last few lines. Not just the lyrics, but the way Rafferty is singing them. When you wake up, it's a new morning. The sun is shining. It's a new morning. According to an interview with producer Hugh Murphy that appeared in Billboard magazine, Murphy said that Rafferty had to practically beg the label United Artists to release Baker Street as a single. According to Murphy, United Artists actually said it was too good for the public. But of course, the single was released and it was huge, reaching number three in the UK and number two in the United States. But the song chart position in the US has a little controversy attached to it, which I'll get to shortly because there's another dispute related to the song. Now, I think pretty much everyone can agree that the signature sound of this song comes from that haunting saxophone solo, which was play, played by uh, Raphael Ravenscroft. The dispute comes from the origin of that solo. Now, in 1988, uh, Rafferty did an interview with Colin Irwin in which he said... And I quote, when I wrote the song, I saw that bit as an instrumental part, but I didn't know what. We tried electric guitar, but it sounded weak, and we tried other things, and I think it was Hugh Murphy's suggestion that we tried saxophone, unquote. Now, this interview came about before there was any serious controversy. In fact, Rafferty was responding to Irwin's question over whether the saxophone solo started out as a guitar line. He then went on to say that he had called in Pete Zorn to do the uh, sax line, but Zorn wasn't able to do it and offered up a few other performers, one of whom was Ravenscroft. According to that same interview, neither Rafferty nor Murphy had heard of any of the musicians on the list, so they called Ravenscroft entirely based on his unusual name. Now, for his part, Ravenscroft remembers it differently, saying he was presented with a song that had several gaps in it, which he filled in. He did an interview at the Times of London in 2006 in which he's quoted as saying, If you're asking me, did Jerry hand me a piece of music to play? Then no, he didn't. In fact, most of what I played was an old blues riff, unquote. So did Rafferty write the riff or did Ravenscroft? Let me muddy the water just a little bit more. In 2011, Rafferty released a remastered version of the City to City album which included a bonus track of the demo version of Baker Street with a guitar in the place of the saxophone. Have a listen and tell me what you think. <laughs> 
Well, that seems to place the composition pretty definitely in Jerry Rafferty's camp, right? Not so fast, buckaroo. This is a track called Half a Heart, and it dates back to 1968. It comes from a jazz rock fusion album called Tomorrow Never Knows, which was mostly cover songs, but did include a few original compositions. The artist on this album was named Steve Marcus, and this was the only album that he recorded as the primary artist. But the composition of Half a Heart is credited to a musician named Gary Burton, who had an interesting response when uh, Giles sent him an email a couple of years ago. At first... He replied that he'd never heard of Jerry Rafferty or Baker Street, but when he called up a YouTube video, he realized, well, the song does sound kind of familiar. However, he didn't really buy into any copying theories because the original album sold so poorly, about a thousand copies total. A few days later, when he spoke to Giles again, he said he'd listened to the two tracks side by side and changed his mind. Now, Burton himself wasn't familiar with Half a Heart either, and in fact, he was kind of confused when he was told he was listed as the song's composer. He supposed that if the uh, credit wasn't an error, it was a shout-out from Burton, who was a friend of his, but he definitely didn't write Half a Heart. Ultimately, Burton doesn't think it was a coincidence, so Giles then turned to Hugh Burns, who played that amazing, yet so often look, guitar solo on the record. Burns was a little bit more skeptical about Rafferty copying the riff. He told Giles, With due respect, there's only 13 chromatic notes. There are lots and lots of instances where things are very similar. And in nearly all of the instances where Giles spoke to someone, the whole controversy over George Harrison and My Sweet Lord came up again and again and again. As Burton noted, you hear something, the brain forgets. So overall, we'll go with Jerry Rafferty generally being on the winning side of this argument. But remember, back on page four, I promised you a story related to a different controversy. I mentioned earlier that Baker Street topped out at number two on the charts. And in fact, it set a record for its time as the song to spend the longest time, amount of time in the number two slot. And the entire time it was at number two, the number one song was Shadow Dancing by Andy Gibb. But it's possible even likely that there was some monkey business involved with the charts. Let me give you a little background here. At that time, in the late 1970s, billboard charts were calculated by reports from record stores and phone calls to radio stations around the country, and then staffers would compile all the numbers to figure out the chart positions. It really wasn't done much differently until the early 90s that more accurate technology came into play. So, at the end of the week, as the story goes, Baker Street actually took over the number one slot near the end of July 1978, and the magazine was set to print. The magazine called the radio stations with the new chart information, and of course they called the producers at the American Top 40 radio show, Casey Kasem's program. That show then went into production with a new number one song. But then, at the last minute, a correction came through that gave the number one song back to Andy Gibb, and that's the way it stayed. 
The story goes that the change was traced directly back to Bill Wardlow, who was Billboard's chart manager at the time. The night the chart was compiled, Wardlow had dinner with Andy Gibbs' manager, and he might have mentioned the shift out of number one for shadow dancing, and that manager may have been none too pleased with the news. The story further goes that Andy Gibb threatened to pull out of a commitment to perform at the fourth annual Billboard Disco Forum, which was Wardlow's project, if shadow dancing didn't remain at number one. And so it went that both songs remained locked in the one and two position until the end of July, at which point they suddenly dropped to five and six. Those changes were so last minute that when Billboard staff placed the emergency phone call to the American Top 40 crew, the producers had to bring Casey Kasem back into the studio to re-record the last segment of the show. And when Wardlow was asked for an explanation for the change, he couldn't really come up with a plausible answer. Wardlow ultimately left Billboard in 1982 when a few other chart-based mysteries cropped up involving some record companies appearing to benefit from chart positions just a little bit more than others. The bottom line is that there are lots of stories out there which support the idea that when, when Bill Wardlow was in charge, chart positions could literally be bought for a while. In fact, Scott Patton, one of the writers and researchers to the American Top 40 show, was a friend of Andy Gibb and asked him about it, and Andy Gibb absolutely confirmed the story about threatening to pull out of the disco forum. And that's it for this edition of How Good It Is. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow me on Twitter at howgooditispod. You can also check out and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where I throw in a few extra bits for you. Thanks again to Podcast Republic for featuring the show and also thanks to co.agmusic, I hope I'm saying that right, for providing a piece of atmospheric music that I used for this episode. If you liked that, you can follow a couple of links that I provided over at the howgooditis.com website. There is no show next week. I've got an annual event going on at home, and if you can find my house, well, you are welcome to join me. So come back to me in two weeks, and we're just going to find out how good it is to kick back and enjoy some music. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time. We'll be right back.